Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today we're going to start a new uh, series. That's right, I said series. I think it's going to take more than one 45-minute to an hour podcast to go through all the interesting information out there on the subject we're going to cover today. Today we're going to be talking about Bible archaeology. This series has been a long time overdue. I've been wanting to do a series on this for so long. Um, yes, I'm going to do this series by myself. Uh, if I bring an expert in on this podcast to talk about this subject, what I'm afraid of is that we will not be able to hit all of the little nooks and crannies because when I bring in a guest, I only have so much time to talk to them. And uh, I want to be free. I want to be free to go ahead and just jump around all over the place and look at all kinds of neat, uh, <laughs> I said neat on a podcast, all the neat things out there uh, that have been dug up that confirm the reliability of the scriptures. Now, on that subject, uh, archaeology does not prove that the supernatural events that happen in the Bible are true. Okay, but when we dig up, it, it just, you know, I've heard it said that every time a spade hits the dirt in Israel or in the Middle East, for that matter, uh, a skeptic is converted uh, or something along those lines. You get the point, right? Uh, everywhere we go in the Bible lands and start digging around, we just keep finding things that confirm the scriptures. Now, uh, for ages now, there have been skeptics of the Bible who um, reject the historical reliability of the Bible. Because, hey, you know, that's another one of those foundations, right? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, one of the foundations of the Bible is its historical nature. If you can poke holes in the historical reliability of the Bible, well, what do you got? I mean, obviously, it's not divinely inspired. If you can't even, if God can't even get his history right, well, then why should we believe in the supernatural events in the Bible, right? Uh, okay, that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, if the Bible is divinely inspired, it should be absolutely 100%, 100% correct on every single historical thing that it touches. You guys all agree with me on that? We're on the same page? Uh, okay, so the Bible, written by over 40-some authors, over thousands of years, uh, 66 books. Of course, the original Bible didn't have 66 books, but you get my point, right? Uh, so many different authors, so many different books, written thousands of years, covering, well, thousands of years of different historical events uh, at this point really it should be if the Bible is a fake if it's a fraud if it's just a bunch of mythology I mean it, for historians it should be very easy to just slaughter the Bible as far as its historical reliability I mean it should be a farce a joke right and for uh, many years uh, leading up to now, there have been many archaeologists and historians who have basically set their life to try and do just that. 
Um, unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, the joke is on them because every single time we dig around in the dirt, we just keep digging up stuff that confirms the historical reliability of the Bible. Dr. Nelson Gluck, considered one of the greatest archaeologists of all time, said it this way. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Uh, John Elder, author of Prophets, Idols, and Diggers, said it this way, It is not too much to say that it was the rise of the science of archaeology that broke the deadlock between historians and the Orthodox Christian. Little by little, one city after another, one civilization after another, one culture after another, whose memories were enshrined only in the Bible, were restored to their proper places in ancient history by the studies of archaeologists. Nowhere has archaeology discovery refuted the Bible as history. Friends, there have been, it is said, over 25,000 different archaeological discoveries that uh, uh, support the historicity of the Bible. And guys, uh, there has not been one single archaeological discovery that has contradicted the accounts that we find in the Bible. Not one. Everywhere we look, archaeology confirms the historical uh, narrative that we find in the Bible. Awesome. And so in this series, I want to explore a bunch, a plethora, a cornucopia <laughs> of these awesome discoveries and share them with you guys. So let's go ahead and look at some of these discoveries. There's so many. Uh, starting with the beginning of the Bible, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. Now, uh, I just released, either I have released or I'm about to release, a series with Dr. Jason Lyle talking about astronomy, looking at a young cosmos, looking at the fact uh, that God did, in fact, create the heavens and the earth in six literal days, looking at the fact that the Big Bang is, as Ken Hovind would say, a big dud. <laughs> it didn't happen. I'm sorry. It didn't happen. And so many other series where we've talked about uh, many different subjects surrounding the idea that the earth is young. Uh, another thing that happens early on in the book of Genesis is a worldwide flood. I think that's a good place to start as far as archaeology goes because um, it's probably going to be fairly difficult to find anything past that point, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but as we've seen in many series already, the evidence for a worldwide flood it is there. There is so much interesting evidence for a worldwide flood coming from uh, um, the geologic column, coming from uh, basically geologic features across the globe. Okay? But what about archaeology? Is there anything from archaeology that would 
uh, at least support this idea of a worldwide flood? Well, uh, yes, there is. There are many different flood myths. All right, coming from all across the world. Uh, in fact, I touched on this just a little bit with my interview with uh, Paul Taylor. Uh, we talked about the fact there there are creation stories found within nearly every single culture across the globe. Guys, why why is that? I mean, yeah, we throughout time, okay, whether it's thousands or millions of years, which of course it's thousands, but. Uh, Throughout time, throughout the history of the planet, there has been floods, right? I mean, there's been a lot of floods. Everybody's experienced a flood uh, somewhere in their lifetime, right? But why should we expect to see a global flood story that's being orally uh, uh, transferred and sometimes written down in every single culture across the globe. Let's look at a few of these. Of course, let's start with the most popular one. Everybody's heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, we have 12 different uh, fragments of tablets that have been discovered, uh, some dating all the way back to the 14th century B.C., all the way to the 7th century BC, there is several different versions of the story. Um, but basically we have this. We have a guy who is basically a Noah-like character. Uh, his name, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm sure, but it's Utnapishtim. And we have this story that uh, the gods were very angry with humanity because <laughs> they were too noisy. They kept having loud, riotous, noisy parties. You know, like that neighbor you have next to you that is always partying late. Never mind, anyway. Uh, <laughs> sorry about the party part. Anyway, um, they were noisy. Humanity was noisy. And so, one of the gods, uh, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name. It's spelled E-A. So what? E? I don't know. A? He warns uh, Utnapishtim that he's going to destroy the earth in a flood and to build a ship. Now, Utnapishtim builds a perfectly square box, okay? So this is where that whole box idea of the ark comes about, which would not have worked. Can you just imagine that? you got this, like, perfect square, and it's bobbing around in a global flood catastrophe, and, you know, waves are hitting it and it's tumbling all over the place. Uh, people are going upside down and swishing around like they're inside of a washing machine uh, or in the dryer, for that matter. <laughs> it just it just wouldn't have worked. But anyway, we have this big square box. So Utnapishtim, he has the animals and his family climb inside of this big box that's been uh, pitched on the inside and out. Uh, we have a flood. Uh, the boat is swishing around and, and uh, ends up landing on a mountain. Uh, then Utnapishtim does release a bird. I mean, guys, this sounds a whole lot like the biblical account. Releases a bird to test if there's any dry land. Uh, he offers a sacrifice offered to gods, plural. Okay, It's not exactly perfect, but... In fact, there are some pretty striking differences. Uh, this Utnapishtim was made a god after the flood. Okay, that didn't happen to Noah. 
the Epic of Gilgamesh had a flood that lasted seven days, uh, it, his Ark did land on a different mountain, all right? And, of course, we have a completely different shaped Ark. But, again, we have this, this whole story of a global flood, a family, and all the animals of the earth climbing into uh, a boat at the command of a god, okay? And then they're spared, and they live through it. And the earth basically starts over. Uh, another famous flood myth uh, comes from the Epic of Atrahasis. I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. There's probably going to be a lot of mispronounced uh, names and words in this study. But anyway, <laughs> the Epic of Atrahasis, uh, same type of deal. We have a situation where uh, Atrahasis is warned by the god Enki, to build a boat because, again, same type of idea as Gilgamesh. Uh, humanity was a little bit too noisy, too many rowdy parties or something. And God, Enki, is going to destroy the earth with a worldwide flood. In fact, Enki says it this way. Now, this is a quote from the Epic of Atrahasis. Uh, it's a little broken up because some of the words have worn off, so we don't we don't have all the words. But uh, Enki says this, Flee the house, build a boat, forsake possessions, and save life. The boat which you build be equal. Uh, there's a little bit of gap there. Roof, roof her over like the depths, so that the sun shall not see inside her. Let her be roofed over fore and aft. The gear should be very strong. The pitch should be firm. And so give the boat strength. I will shower down upon you later a windfall of birds, a spate of fishes. And so Atrahasis, you know, he takes his family and all the animals on, on board of the boat. Uh, he shuts the door, seals it with, with pitch, and then uh, the epic goes on and says, He brought pitch to seal the door. Adad was roaring in the clouds. The winds were furious as he set forth. He cut the mooring rope and released the boat. The flood came forth. Its power came upon the people like a battle. One person did not see another. They could not recognize each other in the catastrophe. Uh, the deluge bellowed like a bull. The wind resounded like a screaming eagle. The darkness was dense. The sun was gone. Now, guys, of course, you know, there are some differences between these stories and what we find in the Bible. The point is, we can clearly see that a global flood did take place. We do know that a family was saved on a boat, uh, along with all the animals, and this flood was visited on mankind because of a God. Now, of course... Uh, the Bible has earned its place as the Word of God, okay? And I don't think I really need to preach on that one in this series. I think all of you are pretty much on the same page as I am. Uh, the Bible is filled with uh, tons of biblical prophecy that prove that it was written by um, a God that is outside of space and time who can foretell the future. It's filled with 
amazing wisdom and powerful truths. I mean, really, it's obvious that it is the Word of God. So we will go with the historical reliability of the flood account, but I think it's fascinating just how many different uh, flood accounts there are, stories of a global flood. Look at this. Uh, There is the Weld and Blundell Prism, and this thing is interesting. Uh, It was dug up well, it's, it's from about the 18th century B.C., and this prism lists uh, kings. Now, it's interesting because it lists all these kings, and they are kings before the flood and kings after the flood. It actually specifically says kings before the flood and kings after the flood. Um, another thing that's interesting is that the kings that are before the flood, just like the Bible, live much, much longer lives than the kings after the flood. Now, uh, it is a little different because the kings that are before the flood, they live obnoxiously longer (laughs) than the characters in the Bible. We're talking like there's some of these kings that live like 40,000 years, okay, or 18,000 years. So, okay, they live a little bit longer, but the point is, We've got this prism that talks about kings before a worldwide flood and kings after a flood. The kings before the worldwide flood, uh, they live much longer than the kings after the flood. Someday I would like to actually just devote an entire podcast to just exploring all the different flood myths that are out there. Uh, that one would be a good podcast to bring in a guest, somebody who's probably written a book on the, on the matter and really knows the content inside and out. There, there's so many of them. But we, yeah, we have flood accounts coming from the Chinese, obviously from the Jews, uh, Greek, Mexican, Hawaiian, Babylonian, Sumerian, uh, Algonquin, Indian traditions. There are so many of these flood stories from the, from around the world. And so yeah, that would be, that'd be a fun podcast for another day. But you get my point. There are many different uh, flood stories from around the world, again, showing the historical reliability of the Bible. Now, guys, as we go here, uh, you're going to hear me making comments over and over about how critics said this and critics have said that. And uh, and then, you know, we were digging in the dirt and this was discovered. Something happened and we discovered this, that or the other. Uh, it might get a little bit tired after a while because I'm going to keep mentioning these things. But it's true. It's funny how uh, over the last couple hundred years, uh, with the rise of archaeology and also different forms of higher criticism, uh, scholars, historians will continue to say, well, the Bible's wrong here because we know that this, that, and the other. All right, here's an example. Okay, well, there's going to be plenty of these examples. But uh, it has been said that during the time of Abraham in the Bible, there were no camels. In fact, there were no, camel, there were no camels until about the 3rd century B.C., or so it's said. They came to this conclusion because uh, Egyptian tomb paintings never seem to depict camels. 
But now we know that that is definitely not the case. Yes, there were camels during the time of Abraham. Uh, in fact, there's been numerous discoveries since then. Uh, we find statues, figurines uh, of camels, plaques bearing represent, representations of camels, uh, rock carvings, drawings, camel bones, camel skulls, uh, and even camel hair ropes dating back to the time of Abraham. All right, here's another one. There were no Israelites in Egypt during the time that they were supposedly uh, there, according to the Bible. So we're looking at eh, somewhere around uh, 1876 B.C., give or take a little bit. You guys know the story. Uh, there was a famine in the land of Egypt. Uh, and we have this character, Joseph, who had a dream, and uh, there was supposed to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And so, uh, uh, during the time of famine, uh, Joseph's brothers, who betrayed him, ended up moving to Egypt, and the families re reunited. You guys know the story. And, and uh, this is where... Basically, the lineage of Christ, the Hebrews, moved to Egypt and lived there for a period of time. Well, skeptics used to say that there is absolutely no evidence that there was uh, the Hebrews in the land of Egypt during that time. None at all whatsoever. Therefore, the Bible's wrong. There's no mention of Israelites in, uh, in any of the Egyptian tombs or temples. Therefore, they were never there. Now, Kenneth Kitchen, professor, uh, professor emeritus of Egyptology at the University of Liverpool, he says it this way. He says, of course, uh, Levantines in Egypt were universally described simply as Asiatics not by specific afflictions. Such people had no place in temple scenes unless being conquered outside of Egypt. All right. Did you guys catch that? In other words, uh, you wouldn't see these slaves being pictured on the temple walls and the tombs. Now, having said that, uh, there are inscriptions uh dating back to the time that the Israelites were in Egypt that depict uh, prisoners from Canaan making mud bricks. Now again, that is prisoners from Canaan making mud bricks. Uh, all the while you do have uh, taskmasters uh, with sticks standing over them. You know, this is forced labor. Gosh, guys, it sounds kind of like the Bible. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about the Exodus. There's some interesting things going on here. Uh, we have a situation where somewhere around 2 to 3 million uh, Hebrews escaped the clutches of these Egyptians, just walked right on out of there, uh, took all their gold. Um, there were 10 plagues that had just visited Egypt Things were not looking good for the Egyptians. Basically, God took the Egyptians to their knees uh, in very short order. And then the Hebrews just walked on out of there with hardly any resistance at all. Uh, 
one objection to this particular account uh, is that there was a massive Egyptian military presence along the Mediterranean uh, coast route leading up to Canaan. Uh, that's kind of funny because that's actually exactly what the Bible says. Uh, in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, we find that the Israelites were led, were not led out uh, along the, the Mediterranean route because if they saw the soldiers, they would have retreated. Okay, so the Bible actually tells us they didn't go this route. Okay, well, fair enough. Let's move on. Other critics have objected to the biblical story of the Exodus saying that, uh, well, there was, according to the Bible, around 600 chariots that chased the Hebrews, uh, well, into the Red Sea, but chased them out of Egypt, trying to catch up to them and, and take them back, right? Well, some critics have objected that there's no way that there were 600 chariots. But in 1997, on the site of the city of Ramses II, uh, German archaeologists unearthed the foundations of an ancient stable. By the end of the dig, they found enough stables for at least 500 horses and chariots. So, uh, huh, maybe that's not an exaggeration after all. We already have 500. All we need to do is account for another 100. Okay, so moving on to the Exodus, we have uh, a situation, a time where there are millions of uh, Hebrews and they have found themselves in a situation with the Egyptians where they are slaves. Uh, the time in history would be about somewhere around 15, somewhere around the 1500s to 1400s B.C., all right. Now, there have been so many attacks on the account of the Exodus, you know, that uh, there were no, as we've already seen, Hebrew slaves in the land of Egypt. And we already know that that's actually not the fact. Uh, that's actually not the case. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that, that there were Hebrew slaves and many of them in the land of Egypt. Uh, but you guys got to see this. Uh, there is a particular papyrus, the, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this. I've never heard anybody say this, so I'm, I'm just going from what I've read. Uh, the Epur papyrus. It is a papyrus that's dated to about thir the 1300s BC. Uh, it is a copy of an original uh, or an earlier papyrus. And it describes a great many things, but some of the uh, most interesting things that it describes is many of the plagues, many of the events that took place uh, directly preceding the Exodus. It also uh, goes into describing uh, post-Exodus and what happens to the land of Egypt after the Exodus. Uh, but what we're concerned about is during this time of the Exodus. And, and guys, this is fascinating. I mean, it makes your hair stand up when you listen to it. Um, and, and what we're getting here is a, a camera angle from the Egyptian side. Okay, this is their version of the story, if you will. And so uh, it, it talks about their being um, lamenting over catastrophe in Egypt. It says that the Nile River has turned to blood. 
There's blood everywhere. Men shrink from the Nile and thirst after water, again, because of the blood. And Exodus chapter 7 verse 20 says, And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died and the river stank. And (laughs) Sorry, I love how the King James says that. And the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Did you catch that? There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, and the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. And the Pharaoh turned and went to his house, neither did he set his heart to do this also. And all the Egyptians digged around the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And now jumping ahead to Exodus chapter 9, verse 22. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, and there will be, and there may be hail in the land of Egypt upon man and upon beast and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. This is crazy. Very grievous. Such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote through throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. <laughs> oh, praise God. Uh, the papyrus says it this way. Behold, the fire has gone up on high and its burning should go forth against the enemies of the land. And in another spot it says... Trees are destroyed and branches are stripped off. There's no food. No fruit nor herbs are found. It says gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. Uh, Lower Egypt weeps. The entire palace is without its revenues. To it belong wheat and barley, geese and fish. It also says grain has perished on every side. Now, that actually might be referring to the plague of locusts, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, It also says the land is left over to its weariness like the cutting of flax. And we see here in in the papyrus that uh, um, the crops, they were here one day, and then this destruction just happens almost like overnight. It's, It's just immediate. And suddenly there is nothing left. Total devastation. Uh, the Bible in Exodus, and starting in verse 14, And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Ev- Very grievous were they. Before them there was no such locusts as they. Neither after them shall be such. For they covered the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hell had left. And there remained not even any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field throughout 
through all the land of Egypt. That's speaking of the locusts, this plague of locusts that covers the whole land. We're also told in the papyrus uh, that cattle weep and moan. And we know uh, in the Bible, Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, one of the plagues, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, and upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous moraine. That's King James for you. Uh, <laughs> it was a plague on the cattle of the field. And we hear in the uh, Ipuru Papyrus, that the cattle were weeping and moaning. Now, as far as the death of the firstborn, uh, there is uh, some passages in this Ipuru papyrus that seem to potentially possibly be uh, mentioning that as well. Um, and, and I'll just read them to you. The children of the princes are dashed against the wall. The chosen, some people think that might be referring to firstborn, children are laid out dead. He who places his brother, uh, this is another passage, we're moving to a different one. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. Huh. It is groaning throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. And of course we see in Exodus chapter 12 verse 29, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So moving on, uh, we have a situation here where in the Bible, at this point, Pharaoh finally, finally, Let's the Hebrew people go. Now, uh, <laughs> there's something mentioned a little bit about that in the uh, papyrus as well. We read that gold, uh, lapis, lazuli, silver, malachite, uh, carnelian, uh, which is bronze, and our finest stones are fastened to the necks <laughs> of the female slaves. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just... You know, this whole event, the whole Exodus, uh, is such a fantastic story. Here we got these slaves, and God himself takes their side. And we have this great and mighty Pharaoh, who's all full of himself. Uh, heart continues to be hardened. Every time Moses goes to him and says, let my people go, or else, and some plague happens, and he continues, uh, Pharaoh continues to be hard, and no, and no, and no, you can't leave. Finally, they do leave, and God not only uh, sets his people free from captiv captivity, from these cruel taskmasters, uh, but he sets them free with loads of livestock and gold and silver, precious stones, basically, uh, in a sense, as the Bible says, almost plundering the land of Egypt as they go. Now, again, this is not like they're stealing from the Egyptians. In fact, um, see my series on, on slavery and the Bible. It's actually quite biblical. The, the Israelites have been serving these Egyptians. I'm sorry, not Israelites at this point. The Hebrews have been serving the Egyptians for so long um, that uh, biblically speaking, they should be set free and not only set free, but with a care package with some means of, of, of finances, of food, some way that we, they can 
enter into the world and take care of themselves. Uh, uh, whatever the case, we read in the Bible uh, an account of that as well. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and 36 says it this way. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. They borrowed of the Egyptians silver, uh, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the, Egypt, the Egyptians. And so moving on, we see in the Aipuru uh, papyrus that then uh, the poor people, or the slaves, they flee into the desert like nomads who live in tents. And as we look at the account of the Exodus, we find that these Hebrews flee into the desert, uh, into the wilderness. They have nothing but, they live in nothing but tents. And they do this for, well, a long period of time, wandering through the wilderness, living in their tents. And um, hearken back to uh, my series on uh, the feasts of Israel. Um, there is Sukkot, or tabernacles, and that is actually celebrating this time, uh, in a sense, they're looking back. One of the things they do is look back to this time where, they're, where they are living in their Sukkots, their tabernacles, their tents. Uh, in fact, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, huh, interesting, right? Uh, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. Uh, Sukkot, again, that means tabernacle, uh, means tent. Um, and the Israelites dwelt in them. Now, just shortly after this exodus took place, uh, the Israelites ran into the Amalekites and had a battle with them. Uh, right? In fact, that was just 17 days after they left Egypt. They ran into the Amalekites. Uh, the Amalekites... Um, are also referred to as the Hyksos. And the papyrus mentions that, well, very shortly after the uh, Hebrews left, the slaves that had all this gold on their necks that they took from the Egyptians, uh, the Hyksos invaded Egypt uh, and basically took over, conquered them. Now, seriously, how could the Amalekites have conquered Egypt. Well, because Egypt had already been brought to their knees. There was nothing left of Egypt. The Hyksos just showed up and took over. And so we read uh, in the papyrus, uh, the gnomes are laid waste. A foreign tribe from abroad has come to Egypt. It also says, what has happened? Through it, through it is to cause the Asiatics to know the condition of the land. Men, they have come to an end for themselves. There are none found to stand and protect themselves. More than a million of people, no seen enemies, enter into the temples. Weep. And so, uh, and it's just a matter of history that shortly after uh, the, the events of the Exodus, we do see that this invasion of the Hyksos And so also, the uh, papyrus mentions this, The day does not dawn, and there is terror because of the darkness. 
And we see in Exodus chapter 10, verse 22, And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And verse 23, They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. It also says, The land is not light. Now, there is a... There is a particular shrine referred to as uh, the El Arish Shrine. Again, I might be mispronouncing that. Uh, and this particular shrine, um, discovered in 1860, uh, also mentions the darkness. Uh, it, it mentions the land was in great affliction. Evil fell on this earth. It was a great upheaval in the residence. Nobody left the palace during nine days. During these nine days of upheaval, there was such a tempest that neither the men nor the gods could see the faces of their next. Uh, that may or may not be referring uh, to this darkness. Uh, but it also, this shrine, uh, I'll bring it up a little bit later, it refers to a few other things. It also mentions uh, the death of Pharaoh in water. Uh, it's kind of interesting how it talks about it. Uh, we have Pharaoh. Um, it says it differently. Uh, it says that the Pharaoh uh, leapt into this whirlpool of, of water. Uh, and him and his army were defeated at this whirlpool. Um, hmm. I don't know. Is that talking? I mean, it really, this shrine does date back to the time of the Exodus. Uh, it also mentions uh, that this event took place at a place called Pai Karoti, uh, which is another name for what we see in the Bible, Pai Ha Hiroth, uh, which I'm probably mispronouncing as well. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 9, uh, the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen and his army overtook them, encamping by the sea besides Pihoth, Pihahiroth, Pihahiroth before Beelzephon. Okay, so anyway, there you have it. it that's pretty exciting. Uh, we have this papyrus, this, this Ipuru papyrus that describes the events of the Exodus from an Egyptian perspective. Pretty fascinating, pretty amazing. Um, yes, uh, the Bible describes a very specific route that the Israelites took out of Egypt uh, and a particular wadi that they walked through and a particular place where all of them gathered on a beach, looking back, they've got this pillar of fire before them. Then Pharaoh's army shows up behind them, okay? And they're trapped. They're trapped against the Red Sea and this army. And the pillar of fire goes behind them to block Pharaoh from getting the to the Israelites. Or, well, the future Israelites, anyway. And um, uh, then, of course, the waters of the Red Sea part and we have this situation where all the Hebrews cross the Red Sea on dry land, get to the other side. Pharaoh's army chases after them into the Red Sea. And then that's when the, Pharaoh, the, the Red Sea closes in around Pharaoh's army and destroys, well, everybody. The enti entire army 
parishes. Uh, now, one would want to ask, <laughs> certainly I would, where is the evidence for Pharaoh's army? Uh, you know, where's all the chariots? Where's all the bones? Where's all the swords? Uh, the shields? Um, all these instruments of war that chased after them? Well, it's, um, from what I understand, it's fairly difficult to send uh, expeditions down into the Red Sea to look for items down there. Um, I have heard, oh gosh, I hate to even bring this up because I just simply don't have the answers on this. Uh, you hear Kent Hoven mention Ron Wyatt and one of his expedi expeditions. Now, Ron Wyatt is a very controversial uh, a guy. Uh, he's since gone home to be with the Lord, um, but he's been involved with a great many different uh, um, archaeological expeditions where he supposedly discovered some very amazing different biblical places and artifacts. And some of them, uh, <clears throat> well, for example, Mount Sinai, which uh, we may or may not talk about too much in this series. I, I might just give you a brief rundown of Mount Sinai uh, in the following podcast, just to wet your taste buds, but I'd like to get an expert who's been there, <laughs> who's actually been there. Uh, I'd love to do that, and so I'm kind of holding out on that, uh, but uh, Ron Wyatt originally found Mount Sinai, um, and, and that's a fact, as far as I can tell, and other people have been there, and it's fascinating, and they've brought back so many pictures. He's also supposedly found uh, the, the Noah's Ark, Okay, in the mountains of Ararat, um, oh boy, out on Face or YouTube, I have an old video that I made when I was still part of that hyper-charismatic church I've mentioned in other podcasts. Guys, I'm definitely not part of that church anymore. Um, but um, it <laughs> back then I was very convinced that this was, uh, in fact, the Ark. Now I'm starting to hear that there's some major discrepancies. I don't know if it is, in fact... Noah's Ark up there or not. I haven't been there. <laughs> I don't know. I would love to get somebody on the show who knows, uh, who's actually been up there, has spent some time studying this. Uh, as of yet, I haven't figured out who is even the expert on that anymore beyond uh, Ron Wyatt. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I put a video out on YouTube and it's gotten quite a few views. Uh, I believe back when I put the video up, I, uh, my my YouTube screen name was something like Buford77 or something like that, which is the name of my dog, Buford, uh, in case you're wondering. Many people interpreted that as I was some kind of crazy redneck guy. Uh, but um, <laughs> I put a video up on YouTube on that uh, uh, Noah's Ark. If you guys want to try and search that out, uh, there is a hilarious misspelling in the video uh, where I was talking about flood myths, and I missed the L in the word flood, and it shows up as food myths. Uh, sounds tasty, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> whatever the case, I left the video up. In fact, I don't even know how to get into that Buford 77 account anymore. It's kind of an orphaned account, so I really have no desire to even try and figure out how to get on there. Whatever the case, um, that's out there. I know it's out there somewhere if you guys want to check it out. Uh, again, I don't really want to get into that in this series. If you've noticed, I didn't talk about Noah's Ark at all because 
there's a lot of competing theories, and I'm going to hold off on uh, really exploring that until I can get some archaeologists onto the show who've been to these sites, have studied the, these things, and, and really know what they're talking about. There's so many conflicting stories on the Internet and so many conflicting stories in books that um, I think I'm going to keep my distance for the moment until I can get somebody who knows what's going on. But, well, anyway, uh, getting back to Ron Wyatt, uh, he claims who, to have sent some uh, um, an expedition out onto the Red Sea right where he believes the crossing took place. And when you look at it from an aerial view, uh, it fits perfectly. I have to say it fits absolutely perfectly with the biblical narrative of how the Hebrews wound their way out of Egypt uh, down through some wadis where they had uh, rock on both sides. They had mountains, sheer mountains going up on both sides. There was nowhere for them to go. They were like going through a funnel, okay? And they could not go to the right or the left. They could only go forward. They were poured out onto a beach. And you look at these aerial photos, it works perfectly. And there's this huge beach that's big enough to to, to fit, you know, about 300 uh, or about 3 million uh, Hebrews, men, women, and children. Uh, and then there is this, oddly enough, and again, this is according to Ron Wyatt, uh, because I don't know, there is a land bridge that is under the water uh, of the Red Sea that goes right across the Red Sea. Uh, it's, st- it's still, you know, it's an in- a decline down into the Red Sea, okay? It, it goes down quite a ways. But I, uh, apparently, again, according to Ron Wyatt, um, the Red Sea is like a mile deep at most the points throughout the, the you know, kind of looks like uh, somebody holding up their hand and, and making a peace sign or a V. Um, along that whole V, it's like, according to Ron Wyatt, about a mile deep. Uh, but there's this land bridge that just kind of perfectly goes across. Well, uh, according to his story, he sent um, National Geographic uh, uh, quality, okay, not National Geographic themselves, but quality cameras down there and was able to photo- photograph uh, shields and swords and uh, chariot wheels, you know, because chariots, chariots are made out of wood and uh, human bodies, well, wood and human bodies, they decompose. But uh, we would and should find uh, all the, the various metal instruments of war and there are chariot wheels down there that are uh, six-wheeled chariots. And Ron Wyatt claims that he even found Pharaoh's chariot wheel, uh, which, uh, according to Ron, only the Pharaoh had a four-spoked chariot wheel that was overlaid with gold. And I've actually seen the pictures myself. Again, you can fake anything with pictures nowadays, but uh, pictures of a four-spoked golden chariot wheels down there i don't know i don't know guys i haven't been there i never met ron wyatt i don't know fascinating stuff i gotta say just fascinating stuff it would be a blast to be able to put together a team and and go over there and, and get some corroboration get get somebody else to go down there uh who perhaps doesn't have as much controversy behind them and see if if what we find down there is exactly what he said. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. But anyway, I'll stop right. 
next week, uh, I would like to talk about some more interesting archaeological finds. There's so many of them. Guys, like I said, everywhere you go in the Middle East, when you start digging around in the dirt, you're going to find stuff uh, that corroborates, supports the historicity of the Bible. Uh, and nowhere do you dig around and find anything that contradicts the historicity of the Bible. Again, that doesn't prove that everything we find in the Bible is correct. But guys, uh, uh, as I've talked about in many uh, series on Mormonism, you know, everywhere we dig around here in the Americas, uh, we find stuff that contradicts the Book of Mormon. I mean, it doesn't stand up at all. But then you go over to the Middle East and we find that everywhere we go, we're finding evidence of of the story that we find in the Bible. That doesn't mean that all the miracles uh, that we find in the Bible are correct. Uh, that's where we have to resort, resort to things like prophecy. But whatever the case, uh, our Bible is correct. It was written by God through the lips and hands of men. Uh, it is perfect. It is inspired of God and perfect cover to cover. In fact, the Bible says it this way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished or equipped unto all good works. All right, so good place to stop. Uh, next week, we'll pick right back up with this and continue on with more amazing archaeological discoveries that support the historicity of the scriptures. By the way, friends, I haven't mentioned this in quite a while, but uh, if you like these types of podcasts, if you're new to youth apologetics training, uh, you can go to my website, youthapologeticstraining.com or Sermon Audio. Uh, but on my website, youthapologeticstraining.com, there is a podcast archive. And in there, there are uh, over 500 of my older and shorter podcasts, but nonetheless, on many uh, exciting subjects, interesting subjects. Everything from creation and evolution, uh, various cult research, uh, even some stuff on the occult. Uh, I have many podcasts on Bible dif difficulties, Bible contradictions, everything apologetics and worldview related. Uh, interesting stuff. I know you guys are going to love it if you haven't been there yet. So check that out. Also, friends, uh, I do accept donations. Again, I don't mention this very often. But if you would like to uh, donate to the cause of youth apologetics training, you certainly can. Uh, my P.O. Box, well, make checks out to Michael Bohm, uh P.O. Box 2392. And that is in Loveland, Love Land, all one word, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. So anyway, uh, that's very much appreciated. Helps me cover the costs. And with that, uh, I love you guys, and I will see you next week.